0: Welcome to the Catholic Connect Podcast. I'm your host, David Scubin. This is a podcast for all Catholics and people of goodwill who strive to live in the world but not be of the world. First and foremost, we need to be disciples of Jesus ourselves, and then we go forth and make disciples of all nations, just as our Lord commanded. Through a series of timely topics and great guests, we will take that long and narrow journey to heaven together, encouraging each other in faith and virtue along the way. So let's get started. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. I'm very blessed to be joined by the following guest. He's a Catholic author, apologist, he's based out of Michigan, and has appeared on a variety of Catholic media, including Virgin Most Powerful Radio, which a lot of you are familiar with, and various other Catholic podcasts. He's also an author, including the book uh, titled, How Old is Your Church? And that's the book we'll be referring to today. He's also a family man, and most importantly, he is our brother in Christ. Ken Litchfield, welcome to the Catholic Canuck podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. How's David today? I'm doing great. I'm really glad that you joined us. We talked offline about uh, you being from Michigan, and... uh, uh, a special place to Canadians because of uh, the, uh, the state of Michigan loving the, the game of hockey like most of us do up here in Canada and also a place that uh, Canada can be found south of the border. But uh, it's great to, uh, to catch up with you Ken and uh, maybe before we, we get into uh, some great material that you've got, some great um, Catholic apologetic material and uh, how we can explain our faith and, and know our faith better. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you came to to being a, an author and writing materials to help other Catholics along their way in their journey of faith. Where did you Where did you start? I guess Ken.
1: Okay. Well, I'm a cradle Catholic, um, but about uh, ten years ago now, um, I started taking my faith more seriously. And the what really got me into apologetics was my son introduced me to the Left Behind series of books. And it was investigation into the rapture doctrine that really got me going. Um and Scott Hahn and Tim Staples, they saved me from falling into the rapture trap, even though they were both former Protestants. Um, But they kept mentioning these guys called the Church Fathers. And so I started looking into the Church Fathers. And since I've always been a fan of history also uh, discovering the history of the Catholic church through the church fathers really intrigued me. And so in my normal everyday work job, uh, I started listening to YouTube videos by a sort of different, um, Catholic apologists, Catholic historians, college lectures. And after about 10,000 hours of listening, I started answering questions on Facebook And then I started saving those answers from Facebook, um, to a file because a lot of the same questions would come up and I would just copy paste them into the Facebook question. Saved me a lot of typing. And, uh, so then I decided to compile like the top 25 into a book, um, called how old is your church? And it's laid out to take you from a pagan to heaven. Um, in 25 chapters and in just 100 pages, so it's a great book for you know cradle Catholics that don't know much about their faith. It's a great book for converts. Um, I've a couple people have used it on, in their RCIA program because each chapter is laid out in an apologetic way, so that converts coming into the faith. You know, they might get feedback from their relatives um, or pushback wanting to know, you know, why are you are doing this when the Bible says that? And because each chapter is laid out in an apologetic way, they can explain to them why they're becoming a Catholic and the Catholic biblical references that demonstrate the Catholic faith.
0: Well, that's great. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about reading this, uh, the book that you shared with me here, Ken, because it's uh, it's easy to read. And there's a lot of uh, great points great talking points but they're not very long or complicated it's 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 to the point it's scriptural based it's it's really good so i, I really appreciated that so let's go back to when you first kind of came to the uh um, I, I guess maybe a, a metanoia moment a moment of hey like this is something i want to take seriously this catholic faith of mine a, a lot of catholics are familiar with the left behind series it was a pretty big deal I said 10 15 years ago uh, they made some pretty big uh, motion picture movies on the the topic itself, but what about that that topic? I guess itself that um, uh, that kind of challenged you or, or got you interested in uh, the Book of Revelation, the Protestant interpretation of what happens during the rapture, and and how did that kind of come full circle to say, hey, this Catholic faith of mine, not only do I know how to answer these questions about the rapture to maybe a Protestant uh, that might challenge or ask the question, but how it can actually make my Catholic faith more alive and get me into the church in a, a more deeper way.
1: Well, naturally, uh, the doctrine of the rapture kind of uses the Catholic church as the bad guy, um, in the left behind books, you know, the Pope is actually caught up in the rapture, but the guy who takes over for him afterward is, you know, like the antichrist guy of the book of revelation. So, um, uh, you know, wanting to defend the Catholic faith, you know, was part of my inspiration. Um, And the possibility that the rapture doctrine could be true was another thing that, you know, got my attention. Uh, So I started digging into that and that led me to a lot of Catholic history. And I'd actually learned some about the Catholic church in high school in my world history class because we covered the three major religions of the world of Judaism, Catholicism, and Islam. Um, So I learned, I like to tell people I learned more about my Catholic faith in my world history class than I actually learned in 12 years of catechism. Um, And I, I can't just blame the church or the catechist teachers or the program because you know, maybe I wasn't paying that close attention. You know, there's my my aspect to it too. You know, I don't dump it all on them and say, "Well, you didn't do this."
0: Well, and the gift of faith can like it's it's something that's um, you know, it, it's a gift. So not everybody possesses it in the same way, right? And and sometimes right. it doesn't always come at the same time for everyone. You know, and right. and uh, so so that's that's an interesting point you make too. And think of all the converts in the faith how uh, you know even um he was St uh, John Henry Newman that said to uh to be deep in history to cease being a Protestant right so exactly uh, it's it's interesting how we can uh go back to history back to the past and find things that are more than relevant that we can uh you know not only talk about but also latch on to right now in the present and and grow in our faith so that's that's interesting that you mentioned that Ken that's good
1: when you know the history of Christianity you find out you got to be catholic
0: yeah absolutely you know, the rapture, it seemed like it's that kind of way of thought from from certain Protestants, certainly not shared by a lot, but it does kind of highlight the um, the the passing fad of Protestantism to me. You know, it seems like, you know, every 10, 15, 20 years, there's sort of something different to kind of fall into. And, you know, they come and go. There's, you know, people kind of, you know, there's a the mad rush to this certain something like the rapture or something different that everybody kind of gravitates toward, then it kind of just fizzles out again. Right. But it's been like that for a long time. And, and, uh, that's why, you know, the, the book is, is interesting too, Ken, that you, that you're right. But, you know, I think we should also maybe talk about just the definition of being an apologist. This is not something that uh, this is something that actually all Catholics are called to do. Uh, we're not apologizing for our Catholic faith or, or what we know or what our our uh, faith in God is, but maybe, um, explain to people, Camille, what an apologist is. Right. Well, it comes right from the Bible.
1: Uh, in First Peter chapter 3, um, Peter tells us, you know, always be prepared to give a defense for the faith that you believe, or words to that effect. Um, and so we Catholics need to be prepared to defend the faith. You know, if somebody asks you, you know, why are you Catholic or why do Catholics do this or that? um, Not everybody is called out, called to go out and, you know, teach the Catholic faith or tell people why they need to be Catholic. But every Catholic should be prepared to explain why they're Catholic and why the Catholic Church teaches this or that. Um, For so many of us cradle Catholics, you know, that were born in the, sixties and on up, you know, we go to church every Sunday, hopefully, (laughs) and, you know, we do that Catholic thing for one hour of the day. And then the rest of the week, you know, we're doing whatever else we want, you know, in the secular world. Um, so we really need to learn more about the Catholic faith and then live the Catholic faith in between that hour that we spend in church on Sunday. Um, I happen to be the Grand Knight of my Knights of Columbus council. And even though I'm working today, my guys, (laughs) which I'm really blessed with a great council. uh, My guys are having a uh, motorcycle, hot rod and RV blessing today. And uh, they're inviting people from all around the, the area, you know, to bring their motorcycle, hot rod or RV to the church and they'll get blessed by their priest or deacon. And uh, they'll have you know a little bit of extra God's protection while they're out there on the road, and that's living the Catholic faith in between that hour we spend on church on Sunday.
0: A lot of people don't realize that uh, even just the blessing of cars, blessing of your house, right? A lot of people, th- right. these are things that are that are ancient traditions of the church that have been lost in the modern day. But just because they've been lost for whatever reason, doesn't mean that they're not good for you, especially for your spiritual life. And to your point too, Ken, I mean, one hour on Sunday, that's the least you can do, right? That's the introduction, right. introductory level. That's one oh one. But then what are you doing for the rest of Sunday and then the other six days? You know, we've talked about holy leisure too on this podcast before, and then a lot of people they'll they'll check in for their one hour on Sunday, but then they plop on the couch and they watch NFL for the rest of the day, right? And mm-hmm. that's not a very good way to spend your Sundays either. So um, so yeah that's a, that's a great point Ken it's it's really something we do 24 7 and uh, that's the the goal of this podcast. I know it's the goal of your your work as well as that we can be uh, Catholics 24 uh, seven seven days a week so that's great the, the rank and file Catholic is generally generally not everybody's like this, but very poorly catechized and sometimes there's people that have goodwill. you know there's they just they don't know uh, and you can't share what you don't know right and and uh, you can't give what you don't have so, uh, you know, even something as simple can as the the origins of the Catholic Church. And we were talking about, um, you know, there's so many denominations now. There's there's other religions too, but inside of Christianity, there's there's what over forty thousand different denominations. There's a lot, but a lot of Catholics don't realize the the actual origins of the Church itself. So maybe we start with that question if we want to arm Catholics with with good information that they can they can share with others. Is who started the Catholic Church and when?
1: You can say that Jesus started the Catholic Church when uh, He tells Peter in John chapter sixteen, "You know, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church." And then after that, uh, you know, you can say the church started in the upper room at the Last Supper. And the latest you can say that the church started was would be like in the upper room after Jesus' ascension into heaven. Um, but the day of Pentecost that, uh, when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles. So there's at least three different starting points you can go with there. Uh, and I like to go all the way back to you know, Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. And some people are confused by the English use of Peter and then rock. Uh, but the, in the Greek, it's the same word. And uh, and in Aramaic, it would be the same word. Uh, in Greek, it's the word is slightly different. But in Aramaic, which would likely be Jesus' native language, it is the same word of kepha.
0: And the reason that that's significant is that we can trace our lineage of popes from Pope Francis, uh, who's our, our pope today, back to... St. Peter, which is is outstanding, and that is the verse that I want Catholics. If you're listening to this. Take that verse out of uh, and, and and use that. Uh, the one that uh, that Ken just read there. That you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. And uh, if you can start with with that verse, then you can. The rest is going to come pretty easily, I think, too, you. Right. And the reason I think that's important, Ken, I, I just think it's funny. I did one time somebody told me. I think it was Constantine that started the Catholic Church and then since then i've i've realized that that is a, a common i guess a heretical uh, perspective that others hold on the church but it gives you an example that there are some very strange ideas out there of who started the catholic church and it's good for us to to know exactly that it is jesus that started it and gave those keys to saint peter right so right. what did those first church services look like you know did, you know i think a lot of people don't realize that okay you know pentecost came the apostles received the holy spirit uh, they're gung ho, ready to to uh, to evangelize the nations. But uh, you know what we see at, at mass today. When did mass kind of start, and was it something that was started by the apostles and and what did it look like then? Well, the first Christians were Jews, and Jews
1: already had a formal organized organized worship that they did in their synagogues, uh, and the Jews had been spread out all around the Mediterranean, and You know, different synagogues had different variations on that worship, but they did have a basic pattern for their worship. Um, And that's why a lot of Protestants, you know. They have different variations in their worship service because the New Testament doesn't tell you how you're supposed to do it, but they didn't have to write that in the New Testament because they were Jewish and they already knew how to do it. Now for the Jews, the Sabbath started Friday night and if you talk to Orthodox Jews today, it, the Sabbath starts on Saturday night and they start with the Shabbat meal on Friday night, I mean, <laughs> not Saturday night. And then uh, the Sabbath ends Saturday on, at sundown so the the jews had like a mini passover kind of meal on friday night and then they had their worship on saturday during the day most likely in the morning justin martyr gives us the earliest version of the mass when he's trying to explain it to the roman emperor uh around 155 a.d he's one of the earliest apologists and he's trying to explain to the emperor that they shouldn't persecute the Christians because they pray for the empire and they're actually good service in the empire and they're actually better, they're more moral people than Roman citizens. So the early Christian worship grew out of this the Sabbath worship of the Jews. And in my book, I have a chart on that and if you compare the Jewish worship compared to what Justin Martyr wrote and what we do in the modern Catholic Mass, you know, you can read it side by side and it follows along very
0: nicely. And uh, what a lot of people don't realize, because a lot of people just haven't been inside of a Jewish synagogue, uh, I had a, an opportunity to visit one uh, several years ago. And, you know, it was really interesting, Ken, was that. You, you look inside and there's a lot of similarities between a synagogue and a Catholic church. The one that struck me the most was that they have a, a light uh, like in the same light that, uh, that we wouldn't be familiar with in the church, that red light that we, that acknowledges and lets people know that the presence of Jesus is in the tabernacle in our Catholic churches. They have a very similar light, but it's to um, it's used as a symbol for them that the word is present so they have these like scrolls, I guess, or, you know, not the original scrolls or anything like that, but there's the word, the, the Old Testament. Uh, maybe help me with that, Ken. What would be, what, what do they call that? What do the Jewish people call the um, those readings there?
1: I can't exactly remember what they call this, the scrolls either, but yeah. there's the Torah, basically. The Torah.
0: Yeah, that's right, the Torah. So yeah. I just thought it was really interesting. And of course, the word was made yeah. flesh and dwelt among us but their veneration for the word, our veneration for the flesh, the body of Jesus Christ. I thought that was a, it's a real interesting connection between us and the Jewish faith, right?
1: Right, now, and they, they keep the Torah scrolls in a box. That's right. Like a tabernacle, mm-hmm. and we keep the word, the word made flesh, Jesus, in the tabernacle also. And in the original, um, well, in the temple, the portable temple that the Jews had, you know, as specified by God. You know, there was a place that had the light and the, you know, the menorah, the seven candlestick. And uh, it also had like the, um, the altar of incense. And then there was another altar of the, uh, the presence, well, the constant offering to God, which would have been 12 cakes of bread and a flagon of wine. So these are three things that prefigure uh,
0: the trinity for us Catholics. So, Those connections are so interesting, aren't they, Ken? It really, really is. So, The Catholic faith is like
1: Judaism plus Jesus.
0: That's right, exactly. And I think it was uh, St. John Paul II that referred to the Jewish people as our elder brothers, right? And I thought that was a, a real beautiful way to explain our kinship to the Jewish people and and why we we need to keep praying for them too because God made a covenant with them as well just as he made one with us, the the Catholic Church, right? Exactly. The the word Catholic, uh, we know that it means, as Catholics, is universal. You mentioned St. Justin Martyr, one of the great early church fathers. Um, Was that a, a term that was used in the early church as well or when did that term Catholic, when did that first come up? in the in the
1: book of acts chapter 9 in the original greek there's a phrase ecclesia catholicos and ecclesia is usually translated as church and catholicos you know that's pretty much like catholic um, now the greek understanding of the word catholic is like universal or the whole and ignatius of antioch uses the word Catholic to describe the church in 107 AD. So you can go all the way back to the book of Acts chapter 9, or you can use Ignatius of Antioch writing around 107 AD as the origin of using the word Catholic to describe the church. And even now, the word Catholic in Catholic Church describes how the church is universal and it is present around the world, and there are different rites of the Catholic Church that are, you know, culturally um, influenced, but they are all the same. We're all united under the jurisdiction of the Pope, just like every Catholic church, local Catholic church is under the jurisdiction of our local bishop, who is under you know, a bishop council for that country, shall we say, and then the cardinals and the Pope, you know, we have a level of management, shall we say, like in large business, but still the Pope is Jesus representative here on earth. We have a plan on how to work out doctrinal, doctrinal issues that way.
0: In Alberta here, can we have a, a very strong uh, community, a Catholic community of uh, Ukrainian Catholics. So the Byzantine, right, and it's a, it's a it's a beautiful uh, expression of the liturgy. It's uh, you know, we still pray for Pope Francis. Um, the the joke always with Ukrainian Catholics is because they do so many things three times. They get out of purgatory three times faster than us Roman Catholics. <laughs> and uh, but one of the it's it's great. And you go and if I know for myself as I get older, I have a, a greater appreciation for art and for beauty and you go inside of a Ukrainian Catholic church or another one from our Eastern Catholic brothers and uh, boy, it's uh, it's beautiful how they portray the saints, the blessed Virgin Mary. And, uh, and don't worry if you ever, if you're a Catholic and you would like to go visit, you, you don't have to convert to become Ukrainian Catholic. You could just show up and go inside, right? You know, we should probably touch base real quick on Ken on the Orthodox. I know a lot of Catholics can be a little bit confused with our relationship with the Orthodox church uh, very, very similar. Um, but when did that kind of, that break happen? Because, you know, we talk. I, I mentioned the Ukrainian Catholic church. I talked about the Eastern Catholic church. There's other, uh, there's others as well that, that belong to that, but the Orthodox is something a little bit different. So maybe again, can we explain what the difference is and when, maybe that, I don't want to say a break because that's not hundred percent how accurate, but Maybe like a that sort of parting of ways, I guess, a little bit. When did that happen and what does that mean for us today, our relationship between Catholics and Orthodox? Right.
1: Um, generally, you know, people consider the break between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church to be like 1054, when um, the patriarch of the church in Constantinople excommunicated the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Rome's representative excommunicated the uh, Orthodox Bishop in Constantinople. Uh, both of those excommunications have been rescinded and actually the Pope in Rome was dead at the time that the <laughs> he allegedly excommunicated the Bishop of Constantinople. Of the Orthodox Church.
0: So there was politics back then too, Ken, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, and there were political tensions between the the Western Church, shall we say, and the Eastern Church, um, because the Roman Empire had, the capital had shifted to Constantinople um, in the 300s, the early 300s, and the city of rome was considered like the uh the backwater the the rural area of the catholic church and not um so much it wasn't considered like the center of civilization anymore it was like the hicks out in the country over there in rome
0: right um,
1: and and i'm a guy who lives out in the country you know i'm surrounded by a cow pasture at my house and the cornfield on the east side so I'm a hick from out in the country, so I I can refer to them country hicks.
0: <laughs> well, you know what I grew up, I grew up out in the country too, and sometimes that simplicity not sometimes but I'm I'm really glad that uh, I was exposed to that, and that my my heart still yearns for some some of that simplicity too. When you're in the big city, right, Ken? Right. Uh, there is an interesting quote from Saint Augustine, just back to the church being called Catholic, and it's it's from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, but uh, and I I don't have the the exact reference of which book he actually wrote this in, but St. Augustine says, quote, the church is called Catholic by all our enemies as well as their own children. Heretics and schismatics can call the church by no other name than Catholic, or they would not be understood unless they use the name by which the church is known to the whole world. So St. Augustine said this centuries ago, and uh, we continue to say it today. And uh, it's, it's actually beautiful. And the word Catholic itself to me too, can is very powerful to claim you're the universal church. Um, you, you better have a lot of facts and a lot of good stuff behind you when you say it. And because we do, that's what makes our, our faith so beautiful, right? That's an, an interesting... Uh, yeah, I'm, and I'm glad you explained that with, with the Orthodox and 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 the Catholic Church because a lot of people look at the, the Protestant Reformation. I call it the revolt uh, yes. with Martin Luther. Um, you know, this was uh, sort of the time when... When things really, really broke off, you know, in, in the Orthodox Church, the um, the succession is still there. Um, I think would that be fair to say, Ken, because in in extreme circumstances, please do not do this if you're a Catholic and, 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 and then you mention it to your bishop because I'll get in trouble for it. But in extreme <laughs> circumstances, if you needed to go to confession or if you needed to receive the Eucharist, you could get it from an Orthodox priest. Um, I believe that that's true, right, Ken, in extreme circumstances, because we do, there is that succession, that apostolic succession throughout the years. Is that correct? Yes. Um, in extreme
1: circumstances, you can go to an Orthodox priest or mass, although they call it the liturgy there in the Orthodox church. Um, and, you know, it's better than going to a Protestant church,
0: yes, for sure. Again, please don't do this, but if, in extreme circumstances, this is potentially an option. Um, I see, I don't have, I don't have disclaimers in my podcast, so I better be careful. (laughs) 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 But, but, you know, if, 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 for example, if, if you're, if the only option you had was, was, uh, was a Lutheran service, not going to fly. That's the the example I want to give. So, so that split there, Ken, when, when Martin Luther comes on the scene, uh, the, the reformation slash revolt hits, um, what is the state of the church then, and, uh, maybe what are some of the, the common, uh, maybe, uh, you know, a Protestant will come back to a Catholic and say, okay, my church started, uh, with Martin Luther. I'm a Lutheran, uh, or around John Calvin's time around the same era, but what are some common, uh, I guess, points that a Protestant might make between that time of Jesus and around AD 33 and that time of around 1517, what would they say was the state of the church between those 1500 years?
1: Um, Well, most Protestants are taught that, you know, the original uh, Christian church, they might refer to it as, you know, were just, you know, people meeting in homes and reading the Bible and doing Bible studies. And then, you know, most people are, are taught that when Constantine became emperor and made, people are taught that Constantine made the Catholic, well, Christianity, the required religion in the Roman Empire, but actually he just made it a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Um, it wasn't until 313 that it became the only religion of the Roman Empire or the official religion uh, of the Roman Empire. And it was because most people in the Roman Empire by that time were Catholic Christians, but people are taught that Constantine made Christianity the required religion of the Roman Empire and all the former pagan Roman priests needed a job so they became like the new Catholic priests. That's what they're taught, but there were already people serving as priests as shown by, shown to us by Justin Martyr who wrote, 150 years earlier than when Constantine made Christianity legal in the Roman Empire. Uh, Justin Martyr writes about what the priests are doing at mass 150 years earlier than Constantine. So this idea that uh, the Catholic church started with Constantine in the early 300s, you know, is
0: debunked with real history. To me, that's one of the biggest holes that we can, We can charitably point out to Protestants, saying that, you know, and and even says in Scripture that, uh, uh, you know, the the gates of hell will never prevail against my church. uh, Similar to the, well, it's the same passage that we mentioned earlier from uh, to Saint Peter and the keys of the uh, to the kingdom being given to Saint Peter. Um, It's really hard to envision any kind of scenario where about fifteen hundred years of history did not have a visible church. On this, on this world, right, Ken? Is that, does that make sense to you? Right. Um, a lot of people think that,
1: you know, the early Christian church went, you know, maybe underground. Um, the Baptists have a book called The Trail of Blood that tries to trace their history back to the first century, you know, through all these different heretical groups that, you know, if you just study the groups that the Baptists are claiming as their roots, you find out that they teach heretical versions of Christianity and it's not what Baptists teach today. So I don't know why they would want to claim these guys that don't teach what they teach. But just because there was these group of people that claim to be Christians um, that they can find in history, they try to claim them as their roots. Uh, but again, real historical research debunks that story.
0: And I think it's so important that uh, the Catholics become familiar with that, right? Because, you know, even something that, uh, something like the, the, uh, the Crusades, you know, something again, that's, that's grossly misunderstood by a lot mm. of Catholics because of what the world tells them, what the media tells them. Uh, a lot of these things are, are so inaccurate. And then I know I used to believe when I was younger, cause I didn't know anything else, but then you actually read the history of, of what happened during the Crusades or during some other times and you realize... You know, maybe you weren't uh, always fed the uh, the one hundred percent truth, and you got to go dig for it yourself. You know, I, one of the the great things I, I really appreciate about the book and, and just the churches or the the table that you have with the churches, their founders, and the years. So we have Martin Luther in fifteen seventeen, and then as the time kind of goes on, there, Ken, there there becomes you know all kinds of different denominations that pop up. And, uh, so you've even included the Mormons in here, Joseph Smith in 1830, uh, Seventh Day Adventists, 1860, William Miller. Um, so a couple of, uh, I guess congregations, I don't know if i necessarily call them denominations, uh, or even ecclesial communities, but they mm-hmm. definitely do have a presence in Canada, but, you know, and Joe was witnessing here as well, but, you know, I, I go on to, um, uh, evangelical bible churches uh, and you put local pastor here and i thought that was an interesting one and You put 1950 plus and we see so many of these uh these denominations i guess and some of the they, you know if you call them a protestant denomination they actually might even get a little bit fired up that you mentioned that they're a protestant denomination they would say well, we're not protestants we're we're christians or we're bible believing uh you know whatever they refer to themselves as right everybody's got kind of a different interpretation of who they are and what they want to be identified as. But the advent of of just having a, a pastor starting a, a church, you know, and having some followers splitting away from, I guess, a, a church or a, a community, was that sort of, was it kind of that 1950s era where that's sort of the this explosion you see in so many different denominations, Ken? Was that sort of the era when that started to happen? Well, with the, like,
1: Billy Graham crusades, um, you know, he would encourage people to have a conversion experience and, you know, accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And then he tells them to go out and find a Bible-believing church, you know, and, you know, that opens the door wide for, you know, any church that wants to claim that they're a Bible-believing church. Um, I often refer people that, you know, in my own small town, um, there's five Protestant churches and one of them is, uh, the country life church, um, with, that has a woman pastor and, uh, you know, they just meet in her house. And, um, so, you know, she's the local pastor of a little church that just meets in her house. Um, and they might think that they're, doing like what the first Christians did. But that's a whole nother story. We won't go down that <laughs> rabbit hole right now.
0: <laughs> but it does highlight the, you know, the the desire for for Jesus and the church, the visible church to be one. And that's what the Catholic church has is that, that unity, right? And I was just looking through scripture here. And uh, this was from the gospel of John. And uh, this was before, this was Jesus when he was in the garden of olives. Jesus says, quote, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you father and me and I, and you, that they also may believe in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I think that's, I think that that's from, that is from John chapter 17, but important to note though, isn't it Ken? Because I know I even just in our own local community where I live, where we've seen these congregations, again, I I hope it's not too obvious that I'm I'm avoiding calling these communities a church because as Catholics we believe there's one church. So to refer to others as churches sometimes it it, it slips out. But what we really mean, I think Pope Benedict called them ecclesial communities. Right. Well, certainly, there's there's a connection to our church, but they're they are not the church. But there's these these communities that uh, that spring up and they they seem to be pretty successful. to have a couple hundred very faithful. Uh, attendees and uh and then all of a sudden you know maybe a pastor comes in says something that's a little bit that they disagree with since there's no authority you know all of a sudden another congregation pops up down the street and there's a and I hate to say it but there's usually there's some animosity between the the past congregants and the and the present congregants at at the new building of the new community and uh that's not very Christian so I wanted to to ask you Ken because I think this is important this is an important note even from the early church fathers where there is unity there's the bishop there's the priest where did that kind of come forward as as a as a visible sign of unity in the church that anybody can look at and say okay there's the bishop there's the catholic church there's the one church when did when did that start Ken
1: Yeah um well Ignatius of Antioch writes about that in 107 AD that you know he writes wherever the bishop is there is the catholic church so we're understanding then that you know the bishop is the thing that the guy that you look to to find out what the catholic church teaches um because even though in 107 a.d all the new testament writings had been written they hadn't been compiled into a set of writings that we now call the new testament there were actually you know, other writings that were circulating around in the Christian community at that time that could have been in the New Testament also. Um, And you're right in that, you know, especially today in, well, let's go back to the Reformation, of course, first. Um, When Martin Luther started his version of Christianity, you know, he actually thought he was restoring the original Catholic church back to what it was originally. And even John Calvin, who came along the, the next generation, you know, thought he was bringing Christianity back to the original Catholic church. And they actually claimed that their churches were the, the real Catholic church. Um, and St. Augustine, you know, writes back mm. in the late 300s, mm. early 400s mm. um, about mm. the Montanists, Montanists who were also in North Africa And he was saying, like, you know, you guys claim to be the Catholic Church, but you're only here in North Africa. You look all around the Mediterranean, that's where you find the Catholic Church, all these churches that teach basically the same thing. And even a bit earlier than that, around 180 AD, I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a guy that went from Jerusalem to Rome, But he went the land route around the east end of the Mediterranean, and he wrote about how uh, everywhere, every city he went through, all the churches teach the same thing. So he said that's how you know that you have the correct faith, because it's the same thing is taught everywhere. And I also refer people to the Siro Malabar Church, uh, which grew developed in India and uh, Thomas, St. Thomas the Apostle, he founded that church. and But that church developed apart from the politics of the Mediterranean and Europe later on, and yet they are part of the Catholic church now because once we got reconnected, they said, oh, yeah, we believe that same stuff. Yeah, we believe the Bishop of Rome is the head of the church. And they're kind of like the control um, part The control segment in a scientific experiment, you know, where you have like something that you apply outside effects to and another one that you just leave all by itself. The Syro Malabar Church is the control section of the Catholic Church. So if you study what they believe, you'll find out that, yeah, they're Catholic too. But um, going back to like our modern uh, evangelical churches, um, uh, and I have a born again, born again, um, Christian friend, uh, who doesn't like being called a Protestant. <laughs> he used to be a pastor in two different versions of Christian churches. <laughs> uh, yet somehow, you know, he said, I'm just a born again, Christian. I'm not a Protestant. Yeah. Um, there's, and there's, there's,
0: people... there's a lot of folks like that, right? I mean, right. Yeah, it is what it is, I guess. <laughs> yep.
1: And, uh, you know, you call them whatever they want to be called. Uh, But the fact that, you know, so many Protestants, when they get offended at the church they're currently going to, they'll go find another church where they like what the pastor teaches. Um, And then if that pastor dies or retires, you know, it's like, well, now I got to go shopping for another church that, you know, teaches what I want to hear. And, uh, it may sound harsh, but I like to think of that as like junk food Christianity, where you're picking out what you want to hear, just like you pick out the flavor of ice cream you want to eat or the bag of chips that you like best. Um, instead of like, here's the truth, and you need to change to follow the truth. And that's what we have in the Catholic Church. Most Catholics don't really know the truth that the Catholic Church teaches because they just go there for an hour every week and that's it.
0: It highlights the point and how how important it is, Ken, that our liturgies are consistent, that we don't that no individual parishes deviate from liturgy, that it it's very Eucharistic centered because that's what we're here for is the Eucharist. That's right. the one thing that we have that you can't find anywhere else at any other congregation or other denomination. Is the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and you know, and can we we've seen that, right? I mean, we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's kind of like going on a plane sometimes, you know. You only, you know, most times people that are going on a plane and travel, everybody gets to their destination safely. Sometimes you hear about the accidents or the the mishaps that happen and that can kind of get people a little bit nervous. I'm not saying that that liturgical abuses don't happen in the church. We know that they do. But uh, but for the most part, the the uh, the goal and the aim is always to have that unity, so that we're the same. So that yeah, you're not out church shopping. You shouldn't. If if I come to visit you someday, Ken in Michigan, and I go to your Catholic church, it should feel very much at home for me. That there's nothing really different. And um, so yeah, I just want to make sure that that people people realize that that's that's what the Catholic Church is, and that's why. I think it's important for us in the church to, to invite. And and that's why I feel comfortable inviting people to become Catholic. Even if you don't live in my diocese or in my town, if somebody's listening down the street from you, Ken, I would feel very comfortable. I would just trust the Lord and trust the Holy spirit that if they showed up at your parish, that you would welcome them the same way. And that uh, the, the Eucharistic Lord would be there. Our priest would be there. There'd be a Bishop that has a different name, but still that same office, the same readings that you, he would hear. Or she would hear mm-hmm. if he was, if they were here in my parish or in your parish. Can that's the beauty of this church, and that's why it's so interesting that we find out about the history and what it makes us one for all these centuries, right?
1: When my kids were younger, we went uh, to another Catholic church, you know, one weekend, and they said, "It's just like our church at home," yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's supposed to be that way. <laughs>
0: You know we've done a lot of traveling, Canada. I have tell people I love telling this story. When I go to a Catholic church, uh, almost without fail, in any country or any other city, I feel more akin to them than I do with a lot of people in my own country in Canada. You know we have these, um I call them they're, they're sort of these secular mindsets of we are Canadians or the United States. We, you know the we're Americans, right? That's it's it's nice to have some patriotism. There's no question about that. That is good and that is what the church encourages, but. Uh, but I'm just I'm just saying that if I go to another country, where we may have different languages, different colors of our skin. Uh, I feel a kinship to the people in that Catholic Church that I cannot explain, and you can't explain it to someone unless they're baptized. Does that make sense, Ken? That yes, absolutely. Is that unity? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I have uh, Facebook friends all around the world, and uh, and I freely share my writings with you know these Catholic Christians all around the world, and. um uh, you know, the it's so amazing to me that you know there's Catholic Christians you know all around the world that believe the same thing I do uh, and worship God the same way. Um, you know, there's different local cultural variances, but still it's the same. Uh, I have a just I think it was yesterday uh, one of my Catholic friends in Pakistan. Um, he was talking about you know the rosary. And uh, he wanted some clarification on that, and he thought, you know, it, you know, it should be included in the mass. And I explained to him that you know, the liturgy of the mass is, you know separate from praying the Rosary, but at my church, we pray the Rosary before mass. So uh, that's the time to pray the Rosary. Um, and I also pray my rosary on my way to work every day so um, my prayer life is you know just as much a part of my life as my work life you know I don't I don't separate that off you know from the rest of my life.
0: Yeah that's so important for all of us to to take on those habits and and those good, healthy habits, those holy habits, uh, to bring us closer to Christ and, and to each other as a community, cause we are on this journey together. So the time has flown by as I, I, I kind of figured it would, we've had a great chat. I've, I've learned a lot from you. Thank you so much. And I really hope that you'll, you'll take some time and join us again. Cause, uh, I know you've shared a lot of your materials with me and I said, man, we could do, I mean, there's a ton of material there that we could cover. And, uh, a lot of our, uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters, and even our Protestant brothers and sisters that listen, we can get a lot out of this, and we can learn together. And uh, yeah, so I appreciate all the work that you're doing, Ken. How can people get a hold of you to uh, maybe get a hold of this book that we've been chatting about, um, and uh, and maybe some of the other works that you do? How how can people reach out to you?
1: Okay, well, you can find my book "How Old Is Your Church" on Amazon, um, and I marketed it through Amazon because you can get Amazon all around the world. Uh, And also, you can email me at Ken Litchfield 61 at gmail.com. If you can't afford to buy the book on Amazon, I'll send you a free PDF copy. Uh, I also have about 200 other apologetic writings that I can send you for free. Um, But I I recommend you just start with the book. I'll send you the other stuff when you get done with the book, because otherwise you'll be overwhelmed. Um, And I'm also on Facebook, so feel free to send me a Facebook friend request, and uh, you can connect that way too. And uh, I'm happy to answer questions, you know, wherever you're at on whatever you want to ask about. And um, I'm at your service.
0: Well, that's great. And keep up the great work, Ken. We appreciate that. And thanks for uh, for taking the time to join us uh, up here in Canada and, uh, yeah, part of the, the Church Universal. It's uh, amazing even how we're, we're from different countries, but we can uh, unite in this way to share the gospel with other people. And I think that's exactly what the Lord had envisioned since uh, when uh, when he made that command, that uh, the great command to uh, to make disciples of all nations. So I thank you for your time, Ken. Thanks for having me, David. And I look forward to being on with you again. Well, big thanks to Ken Litchfield for joining us. That was a a pleasure to talk to Ken, and uh, I learned a lot. I hope you did as well. And his book is called How Old Is Your Church? It's such an easy read, and you're going to learn a lot about the history of other Christian congregations, but especially you're going to learn a lot about the founding of the Catholic Church, who founded it, Jesus Christ and our first Pope Peter. And uh, it's a great read, so I encourage you to reach out to Ken directly or to go to Amazon and purchase that book for yourself. So thanks again to Ken for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Hey, thanks everyone for listening to the Catholic Connect podcast. A reminder that we're on Twitter and Facebook. We're also on Gab and Parlor again, which is great. Reach out anytime through social media or just drop me a line through Messenger. I love hearing from listeners and love hearing your stories about faith and uh, your journey with me and uh, always look forward to our conversations. And if you're not a Catholic, I invite you to take a look at our church, join our ranks. It's, uh, it's beautiful. I love being a Catholic. I've said that so many times before. And when I talk to people like Ken Litchfield, guys that are just really on fire for the faith and want to share their faith, uh, it just makes me so grateful to belong to this church, the church that Jesus founded, and a part of this great team. And while we're on this earth, while we're still living and breathing, you have a mission, a special mission that God has only given to you And I pray that through this church, through the sacraments, through living a life in a state of grace, that you're going to fulfill this life, this one life that we have to the absolute fullest extent. And that's what Jesus wants from you. That's what he wants from all of us. So I encourage you to take a look at the Catholic church and join us. And if you're a Catholic that hasn't been to church in a long time, go back to confession, go back to the sacraments. And in everything that you do, be Christ-centered. Whether you're at home with your family whether you're out on the sports field, whether you're out in your workplace, be Christ-centered and be authentic because that's what our world needs, authenticity, authentic Christians. And let's strive for that together. And I can guarantee that this is the way we're going to be transforming the world. This is the way we're going to make disciples of all nations. And for us to get that rocket feel, that rocket feel that we need to get to eternal life, we need to live in a state of grace all the time. And we've got to go to confession at least three times every year, every Lent, every Advent, and any time you're in a state of mortal sin, don't even spend a second of your life there. Thanks for listening to the podcast, everyone. God bless. We'll chat with you very soon.